You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Greetings and welcome to Domecast, the news and observer and NC Insider politics podcast. I'm Don Vaughn here with Colin Campbell, Lucille Sherman, Danielle Battaglia, and Will Doran. And we're still doing this via Zoom uh, recording as we're into however many days, weeks, years it feels like with everybody um, who is luckily to still be employed is doing things uh, remote work. So we are to recording Domecast. So we'll talk about the crazy historic session at the legislature, which of course is only just getting started, but there are five day, I guess, or so session. Um, Lucille will talk about some interesting data and how that is connected to federal money. Uh, Will's got some interesting stuff about looking ahead to elections, and of course we'll have our headliner of the week and other stuff. So to get started, uh, let's talk about the building, which um, when everyone anyone says that with a capital B, they mean the legislative building, since nobody actually meets in the capitol building, um, which Lucille found out when she joined our politics team a couple of months ago and found out that the uh, very cool architecture is rarely used except couple times a year on special occasions as far as when the uh, entire legislature is there, but they do have offices there. So Lucille, you want to start and tell us about your impression of the first time going into the legislative building um, in very different circumstances that you thought you would have. Yeah, well, that's my baseline for normal of the legislative building now is masks and hand sanitizer. And Danielle actually didn't get let in for a little bit. So um, that is just what I'll expect every time from here on out. Um, No, it was really interesting. Um, There wasn't a lot that happened um, whenever I was there Tuesday for the start of the session, but I will say it was a little eerie and um, I didn't get lost in the building. So that's a victory. I think everyone uh, gets lost in the building at some point. I've talked to lawmakers who you just kind of circle around for a while and like, you know, eventually you find your way. But the sergeant in arms are the people that know the score for everything I've found. Um, So they're usually pretty helpful in in security too. One thing I noticed, I wasn't there the the first day. uh, So Will and I took turns. If I was there, he wasn't and, you know, back and forth. Um, So I went that second day and I came up to the building and could see on the other side of the glass security like waving to tell me to use a different door. And I'm trying to open the door with the tissue because who knows how many people have touched it. And then I was like, oh, wait, I need to use my card. And then, you know, they wrote down everybody's name as far as who's there and take your uh, temperature, which is Lucille told us, you know, she rode her bike and was like, well, what if you know, you're warmer from it? And I thought, well, I don't know what my like normal temperature is. So it was kind of a, a weird thing in the building, but um, there weren't that many people there. As those of you who are listening that were in the building last week know, uh, it was just lawmakers and staff and credentialed press, which means like the usual people that, that come in there and cover everything. Um, so it, it was different um, for sure. And wearing masks, which is a McClatchy policy and also CDC recommended um, to prevent the spread of, uh, of coronavirus. So what about, um, how, Danielle, you, why don't you talk about um, what your impression of the building was this past week? I did a lot better this time in the building than the first time I covered the end of the long session. I was able to find my way around more, but it was weird 
going in and seeing, I now know life, lawmakers from like the eyes only and their foreheads, the face down, at least the Democrats, the Republicans were less masked. But, um, but yeah, it was interesting. I mean, you had to go in, Lucille said I didn't get in the first time because they didn't see my hard pass in. So they made me wait outside until somebody would let me in. And I think Colin said, it's really odd that there's a temperature gun pointed at you every time you walk in. And eventually, you know, you're seeing a security guard with a gun pointed at your head and not really second guessing it anymore. So it was just a weird experience. Yeah. So that's, you know, they're obviously taking your temperatures, but it's a police officer doing it. So he's pointing, you know, what is in the shape of a gun at your forehead. And that's sort of disconcerting at first. But I think what was fascinating to see, I mean, you, you know, the press, we were pretty much all uniformly wearing masks and trying to keep our distance, but it was fascinating to watch some of the divides on the floor um, on who actually really cared about the social distancing rules that leadership had put into place. Um, you saw a lot more masks on the Democratic side. You saw a lot more masks among female lawmakers of both parties. Uh, you saw no mask on any of the lawmakers whose day job is funeral directors. So I don't know if they just, you know, don't fear death as much as the rest of us. Um, but, you know, it's was, it was interesting to watch. And then people who clearly were keeping their distance from each other, people who were clearly acting as if everything was normal. Um, and a lot of that did kind of depend on your political persuasion. You know, they had allotted 40 minutes in the House to take votes with the idea that, you know, different legislators would come in waves. Um, and instead of that, what happened in practice was that um, they were all, the ones that were in the building were pretty much in the chamber most of the session, even when they didn't have to be. Um, and then you had a couple dozen, mostly Democrats, who were on a Zoom call and voting by proxy through House Democratic leader Darren Jackson, which is not something you'd normally be allowed to do, um, but they had arranged this for, for this session only. So it'll be interesting to see how much of these practices keep up um, if we do, in fact, go back in two weeks and maybe more things have reopened and maybe people are a little bit more lax by then or maybe they're not. We'll see. Yeah, I think the mask thing was really interesting. And, you know, the guidance from the Republican leadership, you know, since they control both uh, chambers um, through Lewis and Moore was that, you know, all the House members anyway on that side from the document we had seen is that everyone was um, given a mask when they come in and that they recommended wearing them. And I noticed that Representative Lewis would, you know, had it with him and would wear it and then take it off to talk. I think maybe only if maybe Senator Blue, I think, was the only one who was on the floor and tried to talk through it, which is pretty muffled and hard for, you know, people to hear. But usually when they were talking, you know, they were standing far enough away um, from anybody generally, um, you know, during the session that they didn't have that on. One other thing that we haven't mentioned yet is that Usually the press will sit in these corners on the floor if we want, you know, because there's different ways to watch the sessions, but um, the sergeant at arms are right there too, and you're sitting right next to them and everybody else. So we watch from the gallery, which was kind of an interesting view to see everybody at once. So it was having that bird's eye view, I thought was kind of cool, but also, you know, much less accessible to the lawmakers, but that's just kind of part of what's going on when you... Um, need to be apart from people, but uh, Speaker Moore and other lawmakers were still available to the press to talk to from our, you know, distant ways, you know, fanned out like in a circle around him and everything. So that was kind of a surreal moment, I thought. Um, Will, what, what was your impression? And then after we hear about that, if you want to um, talk some about um, election stuff and what didn't show up um, in this bill. Well, my uh, first impression, going back to the temperature gun, like I thought a normal temperature was like 98.6, but I kept scoring in the 97s whenever I went in. So 
thinking of that, like, you know, that Rick James song, cold blooded. Um, every time that I was waved through at the legislature, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was definitely a different experience. And the, I mean, the building was so quiet, you know, without a lot of members of the public in things like that. Um, and it was really kind of a friendly atmosphere. You know, a lot of times, you know, tempers can kind of flare over there and, you know, or you'll just, you know, hear some people grumbling about the other side, but for the most part, you know, people seem to be getting along. I mean, both the bills passed unanimously there was just you know seemed to be a lot of uh, good spirits efforts to work together be bipartisan put on a good face and you know obviously governor cooper quickly signed the bills that they passed so you know just everyone cheery and uh you know getting along we'll see if that keeps up uh you know they've said they're going to come back in a couple of weeks to do second round they of relief spending um they still have around two billion dollars from the federal government to spend this this bill that they passed here was only about 1.5, 1.6 billion. Um, so, you know, we'll see if they spend the rest of that 2 billion all at once, or if they take, you know, a couple different bills over the coming months to do it. Um, they have until December. I talked to uh, Donnie Lambeth, uh, Republican from Winston-Salem, who's a top budget writer. And he said, uh, they're, they're going to be feeling kind of like Santa Claus if it gets to December and they still have, you know, a lot of money left to spend. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> that was a, that was a fun image. Um, Lucille, did you have something to add on that? Oh, no. I was just going to say, whenever I covered the Missouri legislature, we all the press sat in the gallery always. So this felt very much like normal to me. Um, so when this does go back to normal and we're sitting on the floor, I might feel a little weird. Um, but yeah, that was it. <laughs> wanted to chime in on, uh, since you mentioned Santa Claus, Will, today um, we're recording this on Tuesday at the Council of State uh, Agriculture Commissioner Troxler, um, who always has great comments, uh, said to Governor Cooper that he's ready to get a haircut or he could look like, quote, Santa Claus by Christmas time. And Troxler said that he might need to go to the fairgrounds to get some sheep shears and give himself a haircut. And Cooper joked, Cooper is usually pretty serious, <laughs> and Cooper joked that uh, Troxler would look good with a ponytail. So. I know that other people are watching uh, the length of especially men's hair and wondering who's cutting it. Uh, Lucille, do you want to talk about, and then we'll circle back to Will, about um, election stuff too, about um, interesting thing about the bill uh, and the money for DHHS and the connection to the data. So what did what have you found about that? Yeah, sure. So I wrote a story yesterday that was sort of about this DHHS is getting millions in funding and there's one provision specifically for $25 million to go to contact tracing and testing and things kind of related to North Carolina wanting to reopen. So a lot of the things that intersect with those seven benchmarks that we're looking at to decide if we should reopen. Um, and so what I found is there are five requirements um, for new data that um, the Department of Health and Human Services will need to release before they can get that funding. DHHS has been pretty good at releasing data, but these data points could be a really heavy lift and it could take a while um, to get that data squared away. So um, first they have to report positive and negative tests, which should be the easiest Thing to get a hold of. Um, and then they're also going to have to release contract information for their vendors and report how um, much each test 
is going to cost, um, or each test with a vendor costs. Um, and then they'll also need to provide recovery rates, which is something that they've pretty much already been thinking about doing anyway. And then the last two, which are sort of the heavy lift are hospital discharge data, which has to include the underlying conditions of patients who had COVID-19 and then comprehensive reporting. I'm doing air quotes right now on deaths, including people diagnosed with severe conditions and what conditions their death were attributed to. So basically that's a long way of saying we're trying to get more specific information about who is high risk um, in being hospitalized with COVID-19 and um, dying as a result. So those last two data points will be a heavy lift because it requires um, a lot more data and kind of going back in time to dig that up. Um, So we'll see how long it takes, but they have to get all five um, submitted and only the first three, those last two that are the heavy lift, I don't think need to be reported on their COVID-19 dashboard. Lucille, do we have any data on, I know that they've been asking for the um, the death rate and age and conditions, but I don't know, is there a data tracked on like how bad someone has a case? If we know that someone was hospitalized, if, if that's not any necessarily any indicator of if they were in the hospital for a day or a week or, or did they almost not make it or go on a ventilator or not? Um, is there any, any tracking of that sort of thing? That's a really interesting question and a good point. I think, no, it sounds like what you're asking for is sort of the severity of each case. The only thing that we do have to look at that is the number of people. uh, We have open ventilator data, um, so ventilators being used and not used. So that can be a good indicator of the severity. And then also we have hospitalizations, which we know that the current guidance right now is that if your symptoms are tolerable enough and you can stay at home and recover, you shouldn't go get a test. Um, so probably most of the cases that are being reported are more severe, but we just don't have a lot of, we have a lot of data, but we don't really know what to make of it yet. I think it will take a long time for us to really be able to interpret this. Okay. Speaking of time, we're a little bit less than six months out from a big election, which has kind of sort of been paused um, with everyone focused on COVID-19. Will's been paying attention to what could happen with that. Um, Will, tell us more about that. Right. So like I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, the legislature is expected to come back uh, at least once, probably multiple times throughout the year to uh, to do more bills related to relief funding, things like that. Um, one of the things that they will be taking up is um, how to handle elections. And there's a whole lot that goes into this. Uh, the first immediate need is out in Western North Carolina. There's a runoff in the GOP primary uh, to replace Mark Meadows in his congressional seat. And so the elections board has been asking for more funding for that to get, you know, sanitation supplies, uh, to prepare for more, uh, you know, absentee mail-in ballots than they had been expecting. And then elections officials are also, you know, beyond that election, which is, uh, has since actually been moved back from this month. It was originally scheduled for May. It's been moved back to June. They're also looking ahead to November and trying to figure out how do we handle the general election, which, you know, is, you know, for here in North Carolina, one of the biggest, busiest elections we've seen in a long time. Uh, There's going to be a whole lot of interest in people uh, in this election just because of the the pure number of seats we have 
and, you know, it's just big name, big ticket races uh, on the ballot. And the State Board of Elections has asked for uh, several provisions uh, that they think are going to be necessary. They're anticipating that basically if, if this doesn't really let up by November, or if it only, you know, partially lets up, then we're going to see a massive increase in people who are trying to vote by mail instead of uh, going in person to the polls. And so they are asking for money to be able to, to better process those ballots, as well as tons and tons of other other asks that they have. Um, and the legislature did not take up any of those asks in this most recent bill. However, uh, there was some language in some of the bills that they are going to look into that in a future round of funding. So how much and they are going to give and what they're going to fund still remains to be seen, but there has been a you know commitment that they're going to look into that. From the political angle, it gets a little complicated uh, because a lot of the things that the State Board of Elections is asking for uh, were also actually recently included in a lawsuit that just got filed uh, yesterday, Monday, uh, by some uh, prominent national democratic groups um, uh, the lawyer Mark Elias and uh, the uh, redistricting foundation that's run by Eric Holder, uh, both of whom were involved in the gerrymandering lawsuits that we had last year and have been involved in some other kind of high profile, controversial political lawsuits we've had here. Um, they're now seeking some of the same things that the state board of elections is also asking for. So that could complicate things because the Republican led legislature is not a fan of Mark Elias. They're not a fan of this Eric Holder group. They've been, you know, fighting with them for years over various things. And we'll see, you know, what that, uh, what that ends up doing if, you know, if this lawsuit ends up kind of bogging down some of the requests that the state board of elections is making. Board of elections is also looking at uh, a new rule uh, that I wrote about last week uh, that looks pretty much like it's just focused directly at uh, State Senate Leader Phil Berger. It would stop politicians from using their campaign funds to pay rent or mortgage on a house that they or a family member own. Um, as far as I can tell, the only person in the state that, that would apply to is Phil Berger. Uh, we've written about that before. You know, <laughs> this politics is in, involved in everything, and, you know, we'll see how that rulemaking goes, too. They're, they're in the middle of a public comment session on that that goes until mid-June, so if people have thoughts on whether or not politicians should be able to do that, they can still weigh in before the board votes on that. But that's just kind of my quick elections roundup, and, uh, you know, I guess the short answer is, you know, things are all still very much up in the air. There's obviously politics behind everything, um, but the legislature has said that they'll come back and look at at least some of these requests, if not all of them. And of course, I think when they, um, so when they adjourned, it looked like they would be coming back the weekend, a week of the 18th. Um, we don't know yet because the house committees that were supposed to meet haven't scheduled anything, um, that time in between. But as everyone listening knows, when you think they're going to come back and when they do, unless it's an official date, uh, you don't know when they're taking these, um, different breaks in between. So maybe week of May 18th, maybe not. We'll find out. Um, and with the Senate package, as y'all were saying, I think also we could see, um, you know, some people thinking about elections and what they're going to say that they fought for in the second package. When the money starts to run out that they have control over, that's from the feds anyway, um, they're going to want to tout what they um, were trying to push for their constituents. So um, so we'll find out when they come back um, in those couple weeks. So uh, we're about coming up to headliner of the week. Since there's five of us and Twitter polls allow you four, since I won last week, I'll sit this one out. So we'll be right back with headliner of the week. 
Okay, we're back with headliner of the week. Um, make your submissions for who you thought was or what you thought was the biggest newsmaker this past week or so since our last Domecast. Um, Colin, what you got? So I'm going with the uh, the plant this week, the rhododendron, which could potentially be the new state shrub, which apparently is a distinction we don't have in the state, even though we have a state tree. Uh, last week in the legislature, obviously a focus on very serious, very important stuff. But uh, aside from all the COVID-related legislation, uh, there was a bill filed by State Senator Ralph Heiss, who is from the town of Spruce Pine, uh, possibly related, uh, to make the rhododendron the official state shrub. Uh, unclear whether this was a submitted as part of a school class project. A lot of times these state symbol bills are in that category, uh, but we'll see how that fares when the legislature has some time to, to take up some more uh, shrubbery-oriented matters uh, in addition to the really serious stuff going on right now. I think in the fine print of the bill, it actually named like the elementary school class. Um, someone on Twitter told me there's a rhododendron festival in Heiss's district, but I haven't been, so cannot confirm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, hydrangeas are great, too. Um, Lucille, who's your headliner? Okay, here I go. I wasn't sure until exactly this moment. I'm going to do a non-North Carolina-specific thing, which I don't know if that's allowed, um, but I really want it to be the murder hornets, which aren't a threat to North Carolina at this point, but I feel like uh, it's equally stressful and a relief to talk about non-COVID-related things, so murder hornets. All right. (laughs) The plagues. Danielle, who do you have? How do I follow up murder hornets? <laughs> um, I'm going to go with face masks because also very quirky, you know, as you said earlier, the CDC has recommended that we wear them. Our company's telling us we have to wear them. And I've never seen something like face masks become so political in a single week as to whether you're going to wear them, not wear them, whether your party's wearing them, your party's not wearing them. Um, you know, there, I feel like we learned a lot just from who was wearing face masks in the general assembly. So I'm going with face masks. All right. Europe will. Well, it's gotta be the, the relief package. I mean, $1.6 billion going to everything from schools to, you know, helping out hospitals to small business loans. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what we were all doing last week. We're still focusing this week on, you know, figuring out exactly where the money is and, you know, what wasn't included in there. So yeah, that's a ton of money. It's going to be really helpful for people and also a ton of aid that people were hoping for that didn't show up that we might be seeing in the future. All right, there you have it. So we'll make our headliner pitches a Twitter poll at, at Under the Dome. So you can follow that and we'll retweet it too. So thank you for listening. I'm Don Vaughn with Colin Campbell, Lucille Sherman, Daniel Battaglia, and Will Doran. I'll catch you next time. Thanks. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.